From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, July 25th. I'm Aaron Schachter. Today, surprise and unease among scientists at the melting of Greenland's ice sheet. Also, West Africa isn't known for political stability. But in Ghana, there's a smooth transition after the sudden death of President John Ada Mills. It was so smooth, it was as though we'd had practice. And later, a man who lost his leg to a landmine runs with the Olympic torch. It was all over far too quickly, but while it lasted, it was, a, it was such a memorable experience. Without doubt, uh, the most exciting day of my life. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Greenland is melting. Scientists have known this for a long time, but they're still astonished by what they say happened there earlier this month, what NASA is calling an extreme melt event. On a single day, 97% of Greenland's vast ice sheet was covered with water. Scientists have never seen anything like it. And what happens in Greenland could have a big impact on those of us who live in coastal areas around the world. Our environment editor, Peter Thompson, joins me now. Peter, what is going on up there? Well, Aaron, the NASA scientist who first spotted this big melt is calling it extraordinary. In fact, he said it was so extraordinary that at first he thought the satellite data he was looking at was wrong. So he cross-checked with other data from other satellites, and he confirmed that what he was seeing was real. Nearly the entire surface of the Greenland ice sheet was melting all at the same time. Now, I should say a good deal of the ice surface up in Greenland melts a little bit every summer, maybe as much as half of it. But this was off the charts, and it happened very quickly. NASA says there was melting over about 40 percent of the ice on July 8th, but that in just four days, by July 12th, the melting had spread across the entire ice sheet. And this is global warming, right? That's what's causing this? Well, NASA says this big melt coincided with what they're calling a heat dome. They're not, they're not using the words global warming. They're saying it's part of a pattern of extremely warm weather that's been passing over Greenland all of this summer. In fact, it's a lot like the hot, dry weather that's been parked over much of the U.S. this year and that's been bringing us this terrible drought. So global warming? That's certainly a question that's lurking in the background. What is being said is this word extraordinary. But at the same time, it isn't exactly unprecedented. Right. I mean, no living scientist has ever witnessed anything like this before. But folks who've drilled into the ice in Greenland have essentially been able to go back in time by analyzing the layers of ice put down over the years. And they found that a big melt like this has happened before. In fact, it happens roughly every 150 years. And they say the most recent one was in 1889. So they're saying that in a sense, this one was right on time. Having said that, though, there's so much going on in and around Greenland right now that you can't just say, well, this is normal, so don't worry about it. 
Greenland is the largest chunk of ice outside of Antarctica, and it's been melting around the edges for years. That is climate change. There's really no doubt about that. And no one really knows how quickly it's going to start shedding significant amounts of water into the ocean and really affecting sea levels. What they're saying about this event is that one time is worth paying attention to, but that if it happens again soon, that would really be something to worry about. Um, And I have to say here that there's sort of a haunting echo of something that happened a couple of years ago that was supposed to be another very unusual event in Greenland. A huge chunk of ice broke off an important glacier up there called the Peterman Glacier. Scientists said then pretty much the same thing. It's worth paying attention to, probably not something to worry about just yet. Well, two years later, just a few weeks ago, another huge chunk broke off of the same glacier. Right, and and the concern is that uh, all this will cause sea levels to rise, and no one is sure exactly what will happen to coastal areas around the world, but it, it, it seems like a bad thing. With this big ice melt, is that contributing to this rise in sea level? Probably not in any significant way. I mean, right now, most of the ice that melted froze up again uh, almost right away. Around the edges of Greenland, some of it does run right off into the sea, but not in large amounts. The bigger concern, though, is water that seeps down into the ice sheet through cracks and crevasses. If it gets all the way to the bottom where the ice meets the bedrock, it can help sort of lubricate the ice and help it flow faster. Another concern is that when water goes down into those crevasses, it freezes, it expands, it pushes the crevasses open just a little bit more. It's sort of like what happens when potholes are formed in a road. Water gets into a crack in the tar, it freezes, it pops it open. So every time water seeps into a crevasse or a crack on a glacier, it expands that crack and crevasse a little bit more and makes it that much more vulnerable to it happening again. Okay, bottom line, sounds scary. Should we be worried or shouldn't we be worried? Well, let's just say we shouldn't be any more worried today than we were yesterday about what's going on in Greenland. Um, This was an extraordinary event, not necessarily one to uh, suddenly start running around and uh, saying the sky is falling. But what's happening in Greenland is very serious and uh, very scary over a time frame of, you know, maybe not even 100 years. The World's Environment Editor, Peter Thompson, thank you very much. Thanks, Aaron. You can see NASA images of this month's extreme ice melt at theworld.org and visit Greenland with scientists who are studying climate change. We've got a video from the PBS program, NOVA. Now, preventing climate change is hugely difficult. People are often reluctant to alter their routines for the good of the planet. Environmentalists have learned that whether they're promoting hybrid cars or compact fluorescent light bulbs, the best approach is often an appeal to self-interest. That's the tactic an environmental group in Africa is using. It's trying to persuade women to change the way they cook. Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program, NOVA, has this story from Uganda. We put like this. Sister Bridget Kokiambo rests a pot on top of three stones the size of bowling balls. She's in the small, dark kitchen of Providence Home, a school and residence for those with disabilities in the Ugandan village of Nkokonjeru. She points to the space in between the stones. That's where the firewood goes. We make the fire so that it can burn and cook. And the walls are black in here. Yeah, because there's no pipe to take out the, the smoke. This is how nearly three billion people in the developing world cook their food and heat their homes, with dirty, inefficient stoves that billow smoke. They cause health problems for those who use them, like emphysema, heart disease, and lung cancer. 
The black soot is also bad for the climate. It's a greenhouse pollutant that helps warm the planet. And because these stoves are inefficient, they require a lot of firewood, which contributes to deforestation. One solution that's being promoted here and elsewhere is a cleaner cook stove. This is the stove which I was talking of. Confrio in Subuga works for an environmental group in Uganda called Jeep. It's one of many organizations in the developing world that are promoting more efficient cook stoves. Nsubuga's version sits in the corner of his kitchen in the village of Bumbuja. His wife blows on the kindling, and the flames flare up, lapping at the wood. This is the air passage. The stove's nothing fancy. In fact, Nsubuga's organization doesn't sell the stoves. It teaches people to build them. The stove is made from clay, and it's squat and rectangular. A couple pots sit on top, and there's a hole at the base where the firewood goes. What makes it efficient is... uh... The way how it is constructed, because as you see now, there is only one piece of firewood. A single piece of firewood can heat up the whole unit, so the stove is energy efficient. And no smoke wafts into the kitchen. It's all diverted through an aluminum chimney. This stove may be better for the environment, but it's different from what people are accustomed to. So getting people to use them can be a challenge. Radha Mathaya is the executive director of the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves. There may be well-intentioned individuals and organizations that have developed good, clean, efficient stoves, but they haven't taken into account how those stoves may be used on a day-to-day basis. Some people resist switching to the new stoves because they believe that food tastes better when cooked over a traditional open fire. In Uganda, Confrio Nsubuga has noticed that people can be reluctant to adopt his clean cook stoves. So he's trying a different tactic to convince women to make the switch. He's pitching the clean cook stoves not as a way to protect the environment, but as a way for women to protect themselves. This is where people get firewood. It's dusk, and Nsubuga has escorted me into the forest behind his home. Down here I see dark. We peer through the trees and can just make out someone using an axe to cut down branches and tree trunks. Nsubuga says it's usually women and children who collect firewood in the forests. And it can be a dangerous place for them. The greenery is so thick someone could easily hide and watch you. And the din of the forest masks even nearby sounds. Inside forests like this, rape and sexual assault are common. In one region of Uganda, 20 to 30 percent of gender-based violence incidents are estimated to occur when women are out collecting firewood. Again, Radha Mathaya from the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves. So if you have a more efficient stove, then uh, that certainly reduces the number of times that the women have to go out and make that trek. And this is one way the Ugandan environmental group Jeep is promoting its clean cook stoves. It says they translate into less time in the forest, which means a lower risk of rape and sexual assault. The argument appealed to Jane Nambuli, who lives down the road from the forest in Bumbuja. She's 65. She says she used to go into the forest to fetch firewood, but was afraid of being raped, because, she says, most women are raped. Now Nambuli has one of the new stoves, and she says she feels safer. She uses so little wood that she's pretty much able to grow what she needs in her own yard, something else the local environmental group taught her. Nambuli smiles as she lifts a cover made of banana leaves off a pot on her new stove. Inside there's rice and sweet potatoes, which she and her family have just eaten for lunch. The food is hot, the air inside her home is clean, 
and she didn't have to venture into the forest. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Bumbuja, Uganda. On the other side of the continent, citizens of the West African nation of Ghana are mourning the death of their president, John Adam Mills. Mills died yesterday. Just a few hours later, his successor, John Mahama, was sworn in as the new leader. Elizabeth Ohini is a Ghanaian journalist and a former government minister. Ohini says in a region where the transfer of power is often accompanied by violence, the smooth handover was welcome. Yesterday after he died, um, I kind of, after you got over the sadness and all, I felt very proud as a Ghanaian in the way in which we managed the secession. It was so smooth. It was as though we'd had practice in it. And this is the first time it had ever happened. Okay, it says in the Constitution what you should do when a president dies in office, but it never happened before. And it told me that our democracy must be healthier than some of us had dared hoped. And it seems to me, if we continue on this scale, and we are due to have elections in December, once we go through these, we are, with every passing set of elections, we make progress. And I'm currently feeling rather optimistic about Ghana, I must say. I think that we will make it. Now, it wasn't that long ago, just about 30 years, that uh, the leader of Ghana was a coup leader, What do you think accounts for the fact that a mere 30 or so years later, the country is exhibiting this democratic maturity? I think we just had enough, you know. These successive coup d'etat, successive military leaders, each one will come and say they are saving us, they are liberating us from corrupt politicians, from this and that, and they would mess with us. And we found that the soldiers were as equally corrupt sometimes even more corrupt than the politicians. So I think the people of Ghana just decided that they'd had enough. And don't get me wrong, the unemployment situation is rough. But we can see that every year we are making progress. And we have decided that we would much rather stick with trying out the constitutional form of government rather than allow any liberators or saviors to take our destiny in their hands again. Journalist Elizabeth Ohini spoke to us about the death of Ghanaian leader John Ada Mills. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Coming up, raising campaign cash overseas on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. The World is supported in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. China's table tennis team is favored to win big in London. The Chinese have dominated table tennis, don't call it ping pong, since it became an official Olympic sport in 1988. And this year, for the first time, the entire U.S. team is made up of American-born Chinese. Reporter Nina Porzuki went to watch them train. In a New Jersey suburb between a Western Union and a drugstore is a stucco storefront. From the outside, it's nothing unusual. But inside... Yes, that's the sound of ping-pong. 24 ping-pong tables, to be exact. This is Lily Yip's Table Tennis Center. Players dart behind the table, swinging their paddles. Ping-pong balls flying so fast, all you can see are orange blurs. 
It's the weekend before the U.S. Open National Championship in Detroit, and former Olympian Willie Yip is hosting a training camp. When Yip opened the center nearly two years ago, she had one objective in mind. So I try to put the Chinese system in the United States. See, we can you know produce some professional player. Yip is the product of that Chinese system. She started playing table tennis at seven years old and went on to become the champion in her province in southern China. But in China, there are hundreds of players just like Yip, good, even better than good, but not good enough to go to the Olympics for China. I was good player in China, but we don't have that chance. Come to the United States, have that chance. Yip played for the U.S. in Barcelona and Atlanta, but she was never able to medal. In fact, the U.S. has never won a medal in table tennis. The Chinese—it's、um, the best in the world. So Yip has made it her mission to give back to her adopted country and produce Olympians. That is American-born Olympians, the Chinese way. Ping Pong has played an important role in opening the door to the U.S.-China relationship. Remember when China invited the U.S. team to a friendly tournament in 1971? The event was memorialized in the film Forrest Gump. I was so good that some years later, the army decided that I should be on the All-America Ping Pong team. We were the first Americans to visit the land of China in like a million years or something like that. Somebody said world peace was in our hands, but all I did was play ping pong. Timogen was a real member of the team that went to China for that historic event. I reached him by phone. He's now the official U.S. table tennis historian, and he says the official sport of table tennis began in the U.S. in 1928. In the early days, the U.S. table tennis was a Jewish sport, always a sport for minorities. But the Chinese influence on the sport in the U.S. began in the 1990s. The Chinese expatriates, who were good players in China but who had now gotten too old, came and they began to dominate. The U.S. plays, and over the past decades, has Bogan the sport has gained a new level of respectability, moving from the basement to clubs like Lily Yips. This summer, for the first time, the U.S. will be sending a completely homegrown team of athletes to the Olympics. All four members who qualified are Americans of Chinese descent, but no one really expects us to do very well. <laughs> Erica Wu isn't being modest. The 16-year-old from Southern California will compete in London along with her other teenage teammates, Ariel Shing, Lily Zhang, and Timothy Wong. They all expect, well, to lose, and Wu doesn't seem to mind. I'm playing the sport because I really love it, I guess, and then it doesn't really bother me that I can't, you know, get a gold medal at the Olympics because, I mean, I'm still going, I'm still competing. I mean, I mean, when I grow up, I don't really want to become a professional table tennis player. Yeah, I want to become a vet. Like Yip, Wu started playing table tennis when she was seven years old. Soon, she was winning tournaments, and then she made the national team. But to take her skill to the next level, Wu needed tougher competition. So her parents arranged for a player to come over from China just to play against her. His name, well, is Jay, and then his Chinese name is Yuan Xiaojie, and he's from Henan. Jay is 21. He speaks little English, so Erica Wu translates everything into Mandarin for him. It's funny because my Chinese was really bad, and then when I started playing table tennis, like all of my coaches are Chinese, and they speak Chinese to me. Now my Chinese is a lot better. The Wu family pays Jay $1,500 a month plus room and board. Over the past year, he's lived with the Wu's, and he's become a part of the family, going on ski vacations, on trips to Disneyland. 
Jay's part opponent, part older brother. Off the court, Erica is always trying to scare him, like an annoying little sister. On the, on the court, he has more power, you know, and then off court, I kind of get my revenge, sort of. <laughs> this family-like experience might seem foreign to Jay. Back in China, he left home at a young age to live in a training center, where he played table tennis day and night. He was never good enough to make it to the Chinese national team, but he's good, better than Erica. And so I asked over the phone if Erica would ask Jay whether he was jealous that she gets to go to the Olympics while he never will. He said that um, even though he didn't make it, he coached someone to the Olympics, so it's kind of like he went too. Jay won't be accompanying Erica to London. He's going back to China. And his parting advice isn't exactly advice. He said if we play against China, we have no chance, so he doesn't even care. He says he's fine with it, as long as she doesn't lose too badly. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki. And we have a slideshow with photos of some of the players and trainers at theworld.org. North Korea's Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un is married. The announcement came today on official media there. His bride is a woman named Ri Sol-ju, and North Korea experts are scrambling to find out something about her. The world's Chris Wolf is no such expert, but he is excited at this latest news out of Pyongyang. I love a good wedding. Sadly, I didn't get an invite to the wedding of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, but then almost nobody did. The supreme leader was apparently married recently in a stealth ceremony. That music we just heard wasn't even from the big day, but was featured in a North Korean TV bulletin today. It's so good. Let's listen to it again and the announcement that follows. So this was the moment when the world learned that Kim Jong-un was married, and this is what the newscaster said. While a song of acclamation was echoing throughout the place, the supreme leader of our party and our people, dear Marshal Kim Jong-un, entered the completion ceremony for the Nungna People's Pleasure Ground with his wife, comrade Ri Sol-ju. So that was it. No wedding pics, just a note on the opening of an amusement park that the Supreme Leader was accompanied by his wife. The lucky bride is a smartly dressed, short-haired young woman. She'd recently been photographed with Kim Jong-un at public engagements, but North Korean media hadn't identified her until now. Rumours swirled after she was seen with Kim two weeks ago, but North Korea is so secretive, nobody knew if she was wife, lover or sister. Now the pundits who watch North Korea are reading all kinds of signals into today's announcement, that perhaps Kim is adopting a much more open and relaxed approach than his father, who passed away last December, or that he's empowering women, or signalling change. Me? I think he's just being a normal guy, getting out from under his father's shadow. For North Korea, maybe that is change. For The World, I'm Chris Wolf. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, coming up, learning to use an artificial leg built for speed. 
It's literally like standing on a great big spring. As soon as you put your foot forward and put your weight through it and the energy goes through the leg, you immediately feel it leaping forward and actually sometimes you have to sort of run to catch up with your leg. It's like the leg wants to go faster than you do. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Mitt Romney is scheduled to attend the opening ceremonies of the London Olympics Friday night. He's also taking the opportunity to raise some cash in the U.K. As the world's Jason Margolis reports, foreign fundraising trips have become an integral part of running for president. During the 2000 presidential election, George W. Bush and Al Gore raised a combined $230,000 from Americans living abroad. Four years later, contributions from Americans overseas were again modest. Then in 2007, presidential candidate Rudy Giuliani took a trip to London and tapped into a new pool of deep pockets. Other candidates quickly followed his lead. So that in 2008, we saw almost $7 million raised from Americans living abroad in the presidential campaign. Anthony Corrado is a professor of government at Colby College in Maine. Corrado says this year Mitt Romney and Barack Obama are on pace to blow past that mark. They've already raised $4.5 million from Americans overseas. And that number is sure to swell with Mitt Romney's two fundraisers in London this week. Generally, the events where the candidates are appearing are looking to raise up to $75,000 from an individual. That's the maximum contribution allowed. Candidates can only accept foreign contributions from American citizens or green card holders. So what's changed from four years ago? For one thing, Barack Obama became the first presidential candidate to turn down federal funds for a general election campaign. That meant he didn't have to limit his campaign spending. This year, both major presidential candidates have turned down federal funds. Bhaskar Chakravorty, a senior associate dean at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, says fundraising has turned into a war of attrition. Every time one side raises a dollar, uh, the other side feels compelled to raise a dollar fifty. And international locations are a natural place to go because you have, uh, let's say, about uh, roughly four to five million. Americans, many of them professionals, many of them who would like to feel connected to uh, what's going on in the United States, and uh, you can bring them in. About 70 percent of overseas donations have come from Europe, according to Sarah Starkweather. She's a lecturer at the University of Liverpool. But she says candidates will go wherever they can get money. You had John McCain fundraising in Bermuda. You had candidates in Canada, particularly in Toronto. China as well has become not, not so much for candidate visits, but a source of campaign funding, for instance, through teleconferences or, or through, through dispatching proxies. She also found that between 1992 and 2008, donations went three to one in favor of Democrats. I would hypothesize that it's not necessarily because of three to one political support for Democrats. I think it's more to do with just more sophisticated political networks by Democratic candidates. Most of the time, it's not the presidential candidate who travels abroad looking for money. They send a surrogate, 
And the Democrats have come up with bigger draws, says Anthony Corrado. Right now they're planning a fundraiser in Geneva where George Clooney is scheduled to appear. Dinner tickets for the Clooney fundraiser are reportedly going for $20,000 a plate. Most surrogates tend to be less exciting than George Clooney. Last week, Americans in Paris attended a Democratic fundraiser and paid $750 to meet with a former Navy secretary. Mitt Romney sent two of his sons to Hong Kong recently. Of course, if a candidate can show up in person, they can charge top dollar, again, up to $75,000. But Bhaskar Chakravorty says a candidate has to consider if it's worth spending the time to travel abroad to get that money. Just to put this in context, uh, these numbers are, you know, they're just almost a rounding error when you look at their overall treasure chest. But hey, if you're going to be in London anyhow, why not grab a quick dinner and raise enough money to run a few more seconds of advertising in Ohio and Florida? In today's campaigning environment, it seems like a no-brainer. For the world... I'm Jason Margolis. BBC producer Stuart Hughes was one of the people selected to carry the Olympic torch on its 8,000-mile journey around the U.K. The torch will light the cauldron at the Olympic Stadium Friday evening. Hughes jogged his part of the torch relay in London yesterday, wearing a carbon fiber blade prosthesis on his right leg. He lost the lower part of that leg nine years ago while covering the war in Iraq. He stepped on an anti-personnel landmine. Stuart Hughes joins us from the BBC in London. And Stuart, I I saw a video of you doing your run and you looked positively ecstatic. I was. I mean, even a cynical journalist like me, you know what journalists are like, Aaron. We're not the most uh, excitable bunch, if you like, but even I couldn't help but be swept away by the emotion and the excitement of the day. And the most amazing thing of all was so many people came out to to enjoy it. As you may have heard, London this year has been in a state of continual rain for about three months. But the Olympian gods were obviously smiling on us yesterday (laughs) because the sun came out and and, and the the public came out as well. All along the route, there were people cheering and smiling and clapping. And it was was all over far too quickly. But while it lasted, it was was such a memorable experience, without doubt. Uh, the most exciting day of my life. Well, you looked great, and uh, the prosthetic blade that you use uh, was especially patriotic. Yeah, uh, I've been working with a British prosthetics company for about six months to develop uh, a carbon fibre blade that I could wear on the torch relay. And uh, uh, as you say, it was a very patriotic design. It was it was sprayed in uh, the red, white and blue of the British flag. by The a Union company Jack. That does, exactly, the Union Jack. The paintwork was done by the same company that does the paint jobs for, for Formula One cars. So it really did look the part. I, uh, I'm no Formula One driver, so the driver of the uh, of the leg was a little bit slower than the design. Uh, design, but uh, it looked fantastic and uh, a real tribute to the efforts of the prosthetics team who've been working, as I say, for this past six months to develop this leg to try and uh, push the science on a little bit further and create something new that hopefully, although the, my leg was just a prototype, hopefully in the, in the months ahead, uh, it'll be something that, uh, that other amputees can benefit from when it goes on the market. It is, as you say, a, a prototype, but it's something that's been made popular to some extent by the case with Oscar Pistorius, uh, the South African Olympic runner. What is it like to wear something like this? The first time I tried it on, it was the most remarkable feeling because putting on uh, a prosthetic blade, it's literally like standing on a great big spring. So 
as soon as you put your foot forward and put your weight through it and the energy goes through the leg, you immediately feel it leaping forward. And actually, sometimes you have to sort of run to catch up with your leg, which seems like a strange concept, but it's, it's like the leg wants to go faster than you do. It's a hugely liberating thing. And actually, you know, the Paralympics is going from strength to strength in part. It's one of the probably few positive upsides of, of conflict, that, that young soldiers are returning from conflict and they're not prepared to, uh, to sit in a wheelchair and watch their lives go by. They want to be active, they want to run uh, marathons, they want to be able to climb mountains and cycle, and, and that's pushing the prosthetics industry forward and forcing uh, designers to come up with, with new designs and new technology to help people like that, and, and I'm one of the beneficiaries of that technology. Yeah, it's been quite a journey for you since 2003 when you lost the leg in Iraq. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? It was obviously a hugely traumatic experience. I was working in northern Iraq in April 2003 when I stepped on a landmine and the cameraman I was working with, Kaveh Golistan, uh, was killed. He, he stepped on one landmine and fell onto a second. And uh, obviously you go through, through many stages of recovery. The first I would say the first 18 months or so, I was just glad to be alive and focused on learning to walk again and learning to uh, and, and getting back to work and did go back to work and carried on uh, doing the job that I did before, going to war zones, going to uh, other countries and, and working for the BBC. Some years later, I think the sort of psychological side kicked in and, and I began to realise, you know, just what a traumatic experience I went through. And, and I would say, you know, that psychological fallout is, is certainly much more damaging and much more disabling than, than the physical side because you don't know when you're going to get better, you don't know how long it's going to take, and it's, it's, it's a very scary experience. But thankfully, you know, with the support of family and friends, I, I got through that as well. Stuart Hughes, as a uh, self-professed cynical journalist... Uh, what, if anything, are you looking forward to in the Olympics? Uh, as, a, as a cynical journalist, and actually I will be cynical as somebody who lives in London, as, as much as I'm enjoying watching it on the television, I'm looking forward to it being over because for anybody who lives in <laughs> London, trying to get around town in the last uh, 10 days or so has been an absolute nightmare. London uh, is in danger of grinding to a halt. So I'm taking the cowardly way out on Friday just as the opening ceremony You're uh, going takes away. Place. I'll be flying to Canada to stay with my brother, so I'll be, I'll be watching it on TV and, uh, and, in, and enjoying it that way. And hopefully by the time I get back, the traffic will have died down and London will get back to normal. We'll get our city back. But uh, it's going to be a great couple of weeks for the many millions of people who come to, uh, to share in this great city. And, uh, and I hope they all enjoy London 2012. It's going to be a, a great time for them, I'm sure. Enjoy London. I'm leaving. <laughs> yes, enjoy it. <laughs> I'll be back in a fortnight. <laughs> We have video of Stuart Hughes running his part of the Torch Relay. That's at theworld.org. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Friday's opening ceremony of the Olympics is expected to feature 20,000 performers, a cavalcade of farmyard animals, and some sophisticated digital technology. The last time London hosted the Games, 1948, things weren't quite so fancy, as the world's Alex Galifant reports from London. Janie Hampton, a historian of the Games, sets the scene at London's old Wembley Stadium. One by one, the teams marched in. They lined up in front of the King. That was King George VI, the father of the current Queen and the subject of the movie The King's Speech. I proclaim open the Olympic Games of London, celebrating as the 14th Olympiad of the modern era. A single torchbearer ran in. They let 7,000 pigeons go, and that was it. 
Hampton is the author of London Olympics, 1908 and 1948. The 48 games, she says, were the first big celebration since the end of the Second World War. There was just this wonderful feeling of hooray. We're at peace. We can just enjoy ourselves. Although those pigeons weren't quite so happy, they were kept in boxes waiting for the big release. And there was a heat wave the day of the opening ceremony. Remembered the British 200 meters champion Sylvia Cheeseman talking in 1992. Only half of the pigeons flew away because the other half were dead. Well, these were the make-do games. Like today, they took place in a time of austerity. After six years of war, there wasn't much in Britain to go around. Everyday goods, including food, was strictly rationed. A British adult was allowed to eat 2,500 calories a day, including one egg a week. But British Olympians got more: extra bread, extra this, that, and the other. I think, really, I made the mistake of meticulously eating everything I was supposed to eat and putting on rather a lot of weight. Much of the food was donated. Sandy Duncan was an official who later became secretary of the British Olympic Association. The Dutch gave a hundred tons of fruit. Czechoslovakia produced mineral water. Everyone pitched in, and they made a virtue of it. Somehow or other, we had to entertain the world with all these difficulties. As it happens, the science of sports nutrition took off at the 1948 games. There was a British government nutritionist called Dr. Magnus Pike, and he and his assistant, Miss Beveridge. Oh, come on, you're making that up. No, I found it in the、um, government papers. All right. So, what did Dr. Pike and Miss Beveridge discover as they took samples from the world's athletes? One example. The Mexicans were found to have eaten rather a lot. Of tripe, chilies, and beans, and they didn't do so well. My London, as the daylight dies. The British singer Vera Lynn kept Britons going during the dark days of war. Things were still kind of dark at the 1948 games too. The late Bob Mathias, a U.S. congressman from California, was just 17 when he competed in the decathlon. He recalled the javelin component going late into the evening and the lack of illumination at the center of the field. I remember the English officials had their flashlights that they actually shone on the on the foul marker, and once you、uh, threw the javelin, it disappeared in the darkness, and then all of a sudden you'd hear it thud at the other end. And see a bunch of flashlights running out to where the javelin stuck. Mathias won gold in London. He and the rest of the American team faced competition from 58 other countries in 1948. More than 200 nations are taking part this year. Contemporary Olympic Games are massive, complex enterprises. For the organizers, there can be no muddling through or making do. Only grand achievement or failure. Still, certain notions persist, such as a warm welcome. In 1948, the then British Prime Minister Clement Attlee broadcast this message on the eve of the games: "We wish to do all we can to make the visits of our friends from other countries as happy as possible. Here, then, are all good wishes to competitors and spectators alike for a successful Olympic Games." That down-to-earth tone will likely be in evidence on Friday at the opening ceremony. London in 2012 isn't able to spend on showmanship what Beijing did four years ago. Perhaps the lesson of 1948 is that it doesn't need to. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant.
For today's GeoQuiz, we're inviting you to knock it out of the park, a geographically unlikely park. We're looking for a city in the Netherlands. It's a place that recently hosted a baseball tournament, one not by the host nation, but by Cuba. A couple more clues. The city is just a dozen miles west of The Hague, and its nickname is the Flower City. But it's the official name that we're looking for. If you're from New York, you'll be most familiar with that name. Try not to strike out while thinking. The answer's coming up in a minute or two. Still ahead, austerity is taking a toll on Spanish musicians. With government cutbacks, there are fewer venues than ever before and fewer people able to afford tickets. Coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. From the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow, four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. At a baseball tournament in the Netherlands this past weekend, Cuba beat the United States and went on to win the final. That's good news for the Cubans. The bad news is that they lost one of their players. Shortstop Aledmus Diaz has gone missing. The assumption is that he's defected. Andy Hootkamp is a sports commentator for the Dutch broadcaster NOS. He's also a former amateur world baseball player himself. Andy, first of all, where was this competition being held? In Harlem, in Holland. Harlem, in Holland. That is the answer to our geo-quiz. So what do we know about Aledmus Diaz? Is he any good? I've seen him playing five games in the Harlem Baseball Week, as it's called. He's a good player. He's a shortstop. He plays five out of seven games. He didn't play in the final because he went missing on Saturday night. But he's a fairly good player. I'm surprised that he's gone because there are a lot of good players in the Cuban team, especially the pitchers. And I thought that if a team is interested in a Cuban player, it would be in a pitcher and not in a shortstop. So you actually think that perhaps he was picked out by someone? Yes, I'm sure about that. I know from the other two uh, guys who went missing uh, last few years in 2009, it was a, a very good pitcher from Cuba who went missing from uh, Rotterdam, and two years later, a pitcher as well, and as well in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, it was planned. There were cars waiting for them outside the hotels. I'm sure it took about two or three months at least to, to plan this. And Andy, why do you think this keeps happening in the Netherlands? I mean, Aroldis Chapman, as you said, in 2009, yeah. Gerardo Concepcion last year, both uh, defected, ended up in the United yeah. States from the Netherlands. It's, it's uh, in my opinion, quite simple. There are two big tournaments in Holland. There are no official tournaments like World Championship or Olympics. And the best players of Cuba come to those events, and they don't travel too much outside Cuba. So this is one of their few possibilities to get out of the country. It's just a matter of opportunity. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's a chance then that the Cubans will get uh, fed up with their players defecting. They may not come to the tournament anymore. No, no, I don't think so. They, they are so happy and they play for a big bucks as well. And they like it a lot. Perhaps you know the red light district in, in Amsterdam, which is pretty well known and as well... 
the coaches and uh, the other guys around the team like it a lot to get a, abroad. And, well, one or two players defecting, okay, that's part of the risk of the deal. So, Andy Hootkamp, are you saying this isn't all for the love of the game? No, 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 no. No. I, I don't want to offend you in any way, but the Netherlands isn't exactly known as a baseball powerhouse, is it? Hey, be careful. <laughs> uh. We are the reigning amateur world champion. Really? We uh, Last year in Panama, there was the world uh, championship amateur baseball, and we beat Cuba in the finals. Fantastic game. Wow. Yeah, and take a look at the World Baseball Classic next year. You will hear about the Orange team. <laughs> Andy Hootkamp is a sports commentator for the Dutch broadcaster NOS. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Aaron. We'll be keeping an eye on that World Baseball Classic next year. May the best team win. Now, in much of the world, being an indie rock superstar still means keeping your day job. Take Madrid's Rusos Blancos. Yo te dije que te quería y tú me llamaste imbécil. Being in an indie band is like being in a chess club as a hobby. Elisa Perez drums for Russos Blancos, as well as the better-known band Koshman Adelaida. We try to make it as professional as possible, but you cannot make a living out of it. Most bands, even the more known bands, they mm. have their jobs and everything. That is, if they have jobs at all. Unemployment in Spain is running about 25%. The economic downturn at times casts a hopeless, defeated shadow on parts of Spain, a feeling captured intensely in Koshman Adelaide's song, Miss Wisconsin. Well, it's, uh, it talks about resignation, I'd say. It couldn't happen, but it's okay. No quería decirte que ya era tarde. Spain's worsening economy hasn't just affected people looking for work. Governments, federal and local, are drastically scaling back programs, including cultural ones. And that's making it even harder for bands in Spain to get recognized. Victor Riba sings and plays guitar in Odio Paris, a melodic noise-pop outfit from Barcelona. Before, there used to be money to put on the concerts, but now this money doesn't go to cultural events. It goes to other things. The public concerts that they used to provide, they're gone now. The concerts he's referring to were government-funded town festivals. Spain's cultural budget, like its economy, used to be a lot healthier. It's made things a bit difficult, says Oscar Ferre, the other guitarist and singer for Odio Paris. Basically, it costs us money to play a concert. According to Oscar, the average pay for a gig in Spain is about 300 euro. That's about $365. Divide that five ways for a five-member band like Odio Paris, subtract money for gas and accommodations, and you're lucky to get about 50 bucks a piece. To deal with the cultural cutbacks, many Spanish bands maintain a kind of collective do-it-yourself spirit of the 90s indie pop scene. Oscar says that spirit helps carry them through the tough times. 
pero no son competencia. Realmente nos ayudamos los unos a los otros, básicamente, para conseguir conciertos. They aren't competition. We help each other to get concerts. We all call each other. Hey, we have a gig over here. Come to Teleneros. And another will get a concert in Barcelona, and we come. And we sleep in their houses, and they sleep in ours. Because of the crisis, well, the scene is really good. The bands in Spain's underground have created a different style from what's permeated American indie pop for the past few decades. They've combined the downcast, self-effacing style of shoegaze with the beautiful lyricism of the Spanish language. Though Koshman Adelaida's drummer Elisa Perez says that uniqueness might ultimately hold them back. Bands like us who sing in Spanish, normally some can some can tour in Latin America, but normally... No, we stay in Spain. I think it's difficult for other people to listen to music in languages that they don't maybe speak. Koshmenada Laida takes us out with Siquiera Salgo from their album Siete Picos. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Hasta mañana. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Annenberg Foundation, the Rita Allen Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.